Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, AEA Microphones, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 199. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 199 you're listening to. Damn, it's good to say that. Cannot believe we are on the cusp of 200 episodes, but we are. So welcome. It's great to have you here. My guest today is Mr. Pete Lyman. Pete, of course, is a Grammy-nominated mastering engineer based out of Nashville, Tennessee. That's a recent thing. We'll talk about that in the interview. He's also the owner of Infrasonic Mastering, and that is an audio and vinyl mastering studio with locations in Echo Park, California, and Nashville, Tennessee. Now, Pete has mastered Grammy-nominated projects for Panic at the Disco, Weezer, and Grammy award-winning albums for Jason Isbell and Chris Stapleton. It's a little confusing, and I and I had to send Pete a message to clarify this, and, and he helped sort me out here. So here's how it works, basically, if you're confused. If you get Record of the Year or Album of the Year and you mastered those, you get a Grammy. Any other Grammy win where you mastered the record doesn't count. You just get a plaque. So that's something new. I didn't know that, and I just learned that from Pete. I was messaging with him on uh, Facebook. Now, he was recognized with a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year for Chris Stapleton's Traveler. So, yeah, this whole Grammy business, very confusing. But anyhow, he does great work. That's the point. So Pete Lyman is coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee, friends. Let's talk about the compact disc. All right, so... I spent some money. That's right. I bought something that I never thought I'd buy. I bought myself a CD player. I spent 300 bucks. That's right. <laughs> Are you all done laughing yet? No, I bought this uh, NAD CD player. I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, it was 300 bucks. And it, you know, it's kind of like a single disc player. Why did I buy a CD player, you might ask? Well, you know... I've started to go to the library a lot more often and check out CDs, and the only place that I have to play them with any kind of, um, uh, I don't know, regularity or any kind of, without interruption, that's what I'm trying to say, is uh, the car. You know, you get in the car, you pop the disc in, it's there. It's done. I'm listening. With the computers, you know, you, if you have a CD drive on your computer, I have a new MacBook Pro here. It doesn't have a CD drive. I have an old one couple old ones, actually, several hundred old ones. Um, it's a pain in the ass. You put it in there and, you know, I don't know. It's just not very conducive. So I bought this thing, set it up. I hooked it up to my Grace 9, M905 uh, speaker controller here. And, man, it's just been great. I've got these binders full of discs. I've been going through one by one. And now I'm actually starting to think about, well, what, I might buy some discs. It's just great, you know, it's, um, the vinyl thing is great, of course, but man, I just, I'm not ready to go down that road yet. I don't have a turntable, I know, some kind of heretic, I guess, but the CD, 
they you know they sound great uh it gives me a chance to go back through a catalog built up over a long period of time to some really good stuff and and i've been posting some of this stuff i was listening to patty griffin uh, flaming red is the name of the record as a matter of fact i was slipping through and i was looking through the credits and who do i see as the assistant reed shippen i thought that was pretty cool that's right and actually, uh, you'll find out here in the uh, episode with Pete that Pete is is teaming up with Reed at a spot. So, anyhow, the compact disc, I think it's fantastic, and I'm really enjoying it. So, um, you know, you can laugh, but whatever. People are buying up cassettes now, so I don't think I'm that crazy. I'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. It's a great little player. Compact disc. Want to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. They're at uaudio.com. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. Of course, you know about those new interfaces. They've been everywhere. The Apollo X series, you know, different configurations and all that. That's cool. But check this out. In this next few months, and this is 2018, and we are now in October. So keep that in mind. They are doing a thing where if you buy an Apollo Twin or an Arrow interface, you get... Neve, Lexicon, Fender, and UA plugins for free, right? So this goes through December 31st. So you want to purchase and register any new Apollo Twin or Arrow audio interface and get those plugins for free. You do want to do that, right? So if you were planning on getting one, don't forget about this. Make sure you do what I just told you. I will include a link in the show notes, but uh, if you forget or whatever, uaudio.com that's a place to go just scroll down you'll see it also want to give a shout out to our friends over at gearsluts.com they support us we support them in the form of i guess you would call that reciprocal sponsorship yeah the way we do it is is we sponsor the audio life sub forum now if you listen to this podcast you probably like it because we don't talk about gear too much we sneak it in here and there but if you really want to take it to another level head on over to the audio life sub forum there's all kinds of stuff to talk about there with your fellow Gear Sluts members. And uh, not any of it has to really do with gear all that much. So uh, check it out there at uh, gearsluts.com. Audio life. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's go to Nashville, Tennessee and talk to our friend Pete Lyman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for responding at the last minute. I uh, I realized I need Pete Lyman to be episode 199 because we've been talking about doing this for a long time. So I'm happy that you could come on. Yeah, it was funny timing. I was just thinking about getting a hold of you and be like, Matt, remember when we talked about that? <laughs> That's funny. That's good. I'm glad that the universe told me to call you yeah. or, or send you a message. So I want to go back a little bit. Where did you grow up? Outside of Boulder, Colorado, kind of in a rural area in between Boulder and a town called Longmont. So just kind of kind of rural farm country at that point. Uh, now it's not. Now Boulder is completely kind of overgrown like a mini Los Angeles. Lived in Colorado till 95 or 96, and I that's when I moved to the Bay Area. That was my... Uh, my trek to California. Where did you live in the Bay Area? I lived all over the place. Initially, I had moved to Sacramento. So I lived in beautiful Rancho Cordova. <laughs> yeah, it was a nightmare. I lived in Sacramento, I think, for 
about six months until I finally got out of there. And uh, I moved to the Bay Area kind of officially from there. So I lived in Alameda, Oakland, Berkeley, a bunch of different places. Yeah. I never, never ran into you yeah. here that I'm, that I'm aware of. Yeah, late 90s. I was here. Yeah. I spent some time living in Berkeley right off uh, like Dwight and Telegraph, basically. Right, right yeah. there. Yeah, by the Roxy Market. Eventually, you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, 2000, I made the move down to L.A. You actually didn't really get into audio until around, professionally, until around 2004, because you'd been playing in bands leading up to that point, right? Yeah, but I, I'd already started kind of, you know, recording small indie bands. Late 90s, early kind of 2000s, I was already recording, and... I think it was 2000, late 99, 2000, when I met Richard Simpson. And that was sort of what kind of really kick-started me in, into, uh, into, you know, leading towards becoming a mastering engineer. And tell me why that is. What was particular about that interaction? I've told the story quite a few times, but it was a life-changing moment for me. I was with a buddy and we were, we were just going to go grab some lunch. He owned a small record label and he needed to get some lacquers cut. So I tagged along with him. I met Richard Simpson and he was really receptive. He let me watch everything that was going down, kind of explain the whole process to me. And it just sort of blew my mind. I'm an old IT guy. So I was already tinkering around with, you know, early digital audio for a few years and seeing the analog transfer onto vinyl just blew me away. After that session, I went back a couple of days later and basically begged him to teach me how to, how to cut lacquers. That's where I got started. So for a year or so, I would work my boring IT telecom job. And then after work, I would go in and uh, work with Richard. And then he started leaving on vacation. I started covering for him on weekends. And until eventually, we had, a couple of years later, we, we partnered up and he moved over to the studio that I built, Infrasonic Sound, with Jeff Ehrenberg over in East L.A., so that's around 2004, right? Yeah. The studio went through a couple different phases. I had a smaller, just kind of really sort of punk rock studio there for a couple of years. And then Jeff Ehrenberg and I met in 2004 and we tore the whole place down, pretty much gutted it and built, started from scratch. And that officially opened kind of March or April 2005, right around then. How did you meet Jeff? That's a stranger story. We knew of each other because both of our bands were on the same label. We were on, both played in bands that were on this label, Gold Standard Labs, that had been around for a while. There was a Colorado record label that moved to the Bay Area. So we knew of each other. But he moved to Detroit with his band. His band got signed by Capitol, and they moved back to Los Angeles. When he moved back to Los Angeles, he started dating my ex-girlfriend that I shared a house with. I, I still, I, I actually owned a home with her. So it was kind of a strange situation. It was funny. He was really pushy. He's like, hey, man, I know you've got the studio. I want to open up a big studio. Let's pool our resources. And I blew him off for a while. I just thought it was too weird. Finally, he cornered me and convinced me to go to lunch with him. We sat down at lunch and it just made sense. The next day, we were maxing out our credit cards and building a recording studio. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And it, it just uh, it all became completely normal. Yeah, maxing out credit cards for recording studios. Oh, I've never done that. <laughs> yeah. I'll never do that again. You guys ran this as a proper studio recording bands for some time. It's kind of an interesting setup. It's actually still there. We sold the studio to to a producer named Eric Palmquist 2012, sort of right when we moved into our into the 1176 West Sunset facility. 
we had decided to get get completely out of the recording business. But uh, yeah, the the we had a two thousand square foot recording studio in a, a completely separate building. We had a mastering suite, and then we also had a third building that was that was office space. Were you devoting more of your time towards mastering at that point, or were you splitting between recording and mastering? I was slowly moving more and more towards mastering, but I was definitely splitting my time. I was still producing a few bands and uh, recording for a couple of years. And I kind of did that all the way up till about 2008, I think was the time where we I just kind of officially, with, with the exception of the oddball recording session I wanted to do because I really liked the band, it was pretty much all mastering by then. What was it about mastering that drew you towards it as opposed to wanting to be a tracking or a mixing engineer? I think there are a lot of things. I I was always hanging out with Richard Simpson for all these years and just learning about the mastering process and hearing the history. He worked for RCA for over 35 years and he mastered some amazing records and the mastering process just always appealed to me. And obviously I was drawn towards the vinyl mastering aspect as well. Honestly, just felt like I was better. Uh, I was a better mastering engineer than I ever was a tracking or mixing engineer. And it, it was just a discipline that I wanted to focus on. And I got to a point where I realized that I can't do both things. I can't try to, I can't produce bands and record bands and still be a mastering engineer. It just wasn't working. Obviously, there's some other selfish reasons. Ours are a lot better as a mastering engineer. <laughs> Seems the money is better, too, sometimes. Yeah, I think may- maybe it could be. I enjoy it. I love it. I I don't think I would ever go back to being... I, I don't have the temperament to be uh, you know, a recording engineer. I don't have that... I don't have the patience to work 16 hours a day with a band. You know, there are a lot of other people that are really, really good at it. And I'll leave it to them and I'll, you know, hopefully master their records. Well, so what was the driving force to get out of the building that you guys put together there and move over to the 1176 address? My partner, Jeff, I believe he was the third employee, third or fourth employee at Vintage King. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they were based out of Ferndale, Michigan, which is where he was living for a while. So he met all of those guys over there years ago. And when his band relocated to... Los Angeles, he continued to work for him. They were a pretty small company at that point. And he kind of served as their LA rep and our studio sort of informally became Vintage King Los Angeles. So since Jeff was working for Vintage King and we were recording studio, we would demo stuff for people. We were one of the early Neve R&D 5088 owners. So we had a 32 channel 5088 in there and we would allow people to come in and demo it. And towards the end, you know, I think by 2010, 2011, we realized that I I was just mastering at that point. We had, we had hired a studio manager and Jeff was so busy working with Vintage King that neither one of us were using the recording studio. So, you know, we had an insane amount of overhead, a ton of really expensive gear that we weren't using and we had to hire someone else to run it. So, I mean, you know, you know how razor thin margins are on, at a recording studio. A lot of oh, yeah. a lot of mouths to feed, especially when you're not getting paid as an engineer. Vintage King was really looking to expand, so we we partnered with them and uh, you know, the original plan was just to lease a building that Vintage King could use for their showroom and warehouse and that we we would use for mastering. And we had a lease on a building in Echo Park that fell through at the 11th hour. 
and our agent was showing us around and she showed us this amazing building and she said, well, it's not a lease, it's for sale, but I wanted to show you guys. I know you're not ready to buy, but it was a really good deal. It was a bank owned building that had fallen out of escrow. It's like a foreclosure, I think. And we were really interested. And then she told us the address and we thought she was joking. So like, <laughs> how, how can this be 1176 West Sunset? So it just seemed like it was meant to be. So we just kind of jumped in and um, Jeff and I bought it with Mike and Andrew Nera. And we gutted that place and did a full build out, three mastering studios, office space, big lounge. We had the upstairs floor. We still do. We, I still have one mastering room there. And uh, Vintage King is still downstairs. That was really the big push. It was time to get out of the recording studio business. Your time at the previous address prior to 1176, from a survival perspective, how were you doing at that time? Was it rough? It was pretty tough. There were a lot of good times, but uh, I think it was tough in the earlier days when I was still trying to build my mastering career and jump back and forth between recording bands and mastering. Because at that time, I didn't have the luxury of just working on anything I wanted. I worked on whatever jobs I got. You know, when you have to spend two weeks w working with a band that you don't particularly like because you got to make sure that you pay the, the console bill, it's and you know you work 16 hours a day eating pizza and whatever crappy food that the band wants to get. I just realized that when you're a young recording engineer, you have to have that sort of that sort of demeanor and that ability to live like that. Because when you're dealing with independent bands, the band might be what they love, but they also have day jobs. So when they come into the recording studio, it's essentially their their vacation. Oftentimes they're taking vacation time. So you get to a point where you're dealing with people that are constantly on vacation and you're just trying to work your everyday normal life and you want to go home and see your wife and, you know, have a few hours to yourself. And, you know, I mean, you know how those, especially tracking days, those days last forever. You know, it's 16 hour day. That was pretty tough. Was it at that point you kind of understood or learned the fact about yourself that your demeanor was more geared towards mastering? Yeah, I mean, that that was definitely one thing that pushed me that way. But I was always leaning that way anyways. I was always more interested in mastering. That's just the way my brain works. So you guys move over to 1176. The, uh, the irony of that address is just astounding. But you move over there. What was that relationship like from a day-to-day -day perspective of having Vintage King downstairs and, and Infrasonic upstairs? I know you all were friends and you're part of the building, but... Just from a functionality standpoint, were there ever any issues with soundproofing, failing, where they were able to hear what you were doing downstairs in uh, the Vintage King showroom? It wasn't horrible. There were some initial issues and, uh, you know, this would take four more podcasts, but the the guy that designed the building, let's just say that the, the build out didn't go the way we all thought it would. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had the same designer do infrasonic and Vintage King. And sonically, the rooms sounded great. I feel like we did really good work in those rooms, but there there were some issues that were overlooked. And considering the amount of money we spent, it was really disappointing. <laughs> so <laughs> on occasion, there, there were issues in the early days when we tried to figure a few things out. There was a, a short period of time where Vintage King was selling guitar amps. That was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> so, uh, you know, 
because they, they were the guitar amps were in an area downstairs that was set up for a showroom and it was not meant to be a soundproof studio. Right. So, and there's like a hundred watt wizard amps getting cranked up all the way, you know, that's a little unnerving. Everyone, honestly, in all the years that, that we've been partners, they're really, it's really been a pretty easy relationship. At that time, you're trying to build up your business as a mastering engineer. What were your strategies to try to get business in the door for Infrasonic? Jeff and I sort of always had a really punk rock strategy about everything because that's all we knew. We grew up playing in punk bands. So the whole purpose of building that studio was to build a studio that had amazing gear, but didn't feel, you know, like a cross between a Starbucks and a chiropractor's office. Like I didn't want people to come in and worry about like stare at the clock and worry about how much money they were spending. I want I wanted it to feel really homey, but you know, be able to accommodate any level of band or artist. So we sort of appro- kind of approached marketing and everything that way. Jeff and I would, you know, a lot of the bands that we eventually worked with were bands that we knew through the music scene that our other bands had played with. You know, we, we'd both been playing in, in that sort of in kind of punk indie music scene for so long that a lot of our initial clients were, were from that pool. And that's sort of, that was, you know, that's sort of our focus for a really long time. Traditionally, people who are in bands do not always have a sense of business and marketing. Did you guys learn on the fly or did you both have an aptitude for business and marketing to make this work? Oh, we had no aptitude for business or marketing. There was no business plan. There was, like I said, there was uh, let's run up our credit cards and just do what we need to do to make this happen. It was very much just complete guerrilla style business setup. Everything was either self-funded with loans from, uh, you know, I think at one point we had a loan from one of our relatives, but, you know, we, we just made it happen any way we could. So... It wasn't till later on that we started to work on an actual business plan and and started really paying attention to that. And we hired a a manager who actually started as our publicist, Megan Rogers, and she kind of really helped rein all of that in. That's really when we started paying attention to the business aspect of it. It's not how I would recommend starting a business. I think we just eventually got lucky. I'm sure there's a lot of mistakes made along the way. Yes, there are a lot of mistakes. And that's how we figure it out, right? Yeah, that's how you learn. I would go back and do almost everything differently in regards to the way we way we took on the build out of, of 1176. Ultimately, I'm happy with it now, but uh, it took me a couple years to get over my anger, you know, regarding the situation with our contractor. So yeah. that, that, and that was... You know, and it took years just to recoup the money we lost dealing with him. At some point, you just have to, you, like, like you said, I mean, you just have to take it as a lesson learned and move on and, and not do it again. And not waste any more time or effort or, or energy on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Contractors. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. My, uh, I've, I've been burned by a contractor once, and that anger really took a while to dissipate. So I totally get it. It took a lot longer than I wanted it to. <laughs> I feel at peace now. How long were you there at uh, 1176? Man, I, I'm so bad with time and with exact years, but I think 
we moved in there early, right before summer 2012, I believe. And then uh, we're still there, but I, I moved to Nashville about a year ago, just just 11 months ago. So okay. that that is when I left. Well, so let's talk about that. Yeah. I remember conversations with you leading up to that move. And that's why one of the reasons why I was really uh, excited to talk to you is that since we've given it some time before we did this interview, it's given you some time to kind of get some perspective. Having been a West Coast guy in Los Angeles, having that experience under your belt, and now going to Nashville, pulling back from the whole picture. Yeah. What's been the takeaway about not only that move, but Nashville versus Los Angeles? Yeah, it's been an interesting move. And ultimately, getting settled here as a master in engineer has been a lot easier than I expected it to be. Regarding my clientele, I would say over 50% of my clientele were Nashville-based anyways. So that didn't really seem to be that big of a deal. And obviously, I've picked up a lot more Nashville-based work since I've been here. I should start by saying that I love Los Angeles. Like It'll always be a part of me, and I'm, I feel fortunate to have been part of that music community for a really long time. And I still love the Los Angeles music community. As far as living somewhere, it was probably the best decision I've ever made moving to, moving to Tennessee. I absolutely love it here. My family loves it here. It's a different way of living. It's a lot more laid back. It's easier, a lot more affordable. People are great here. The music community here is amazing. You know, huge music community with a small town vibe. Seems to be a lot less competitive here. So everyone, hmm. I mean, you've been here. You know how it is. <laughs> Everyone's real friendly. It's always a fun hang. It's it's a very, the community here is very like, you could just pop into anyone's studio, you know? You could just drop by Sputnik anytime and go see Vance and Mitch or walk in anywhere. And it's a totally normal thing. I love it. It's great. I'm working. I share a building with my buddy, Reed Shippen, who you know. And uh, who says hi, by the way? Oh, hello, Mr. Shippen. Yeah, so that's been that's been great. It's all it's all worked out really well. Okay, I want to make sure that you're aware that our friends over at AEA Ribbon Mics have just introduced a brand new microphone into their lineup. I'm super excited about this. I've known about it for a little while, but now I can talk about it. I'm talking about the KU5A. Now I don't have one yet but I'm going to get my hands on one and we'll be able to listen to it on my voice. I'm super excited about that. Let me give you the facts. This is what I do know. Super cardioid polar pattern. And uh, that's different because a lot of ribbons are just, actually most ribbons are figure of eight, but this one is super cardioid. This one can be used outside and in live use, believe it or not. And it's got active electronics inside with a custom transformer. So you don't need a special mic preamp to use with ribbon mics to really make this thing shine. It's got a, an integrated high-pass filter, and it's got this built-in yoke, so it's, you know, you could screw it right on the stand, and it's made in the USA. Now, this whole thing is kind of groundbreaking because, you know, with regards to ribbon technology, it's got this acutely focused directionality that rejects bleed from other instruments, room reflections, loud ambience in the studio and on stage. So it's relying on these really sharp nulls to reject unwanted bleed, and I think that that is going to be a great asset to this. So I'll put a link in the show notes. You can check it out. I'm excited about it, and 
If you're a fan of ribbon mics at all, I bet you're going to be excited about it too. So check it out. It's going to be at aearibbonmics.com, and there will be more information to come, and we'll get a mic, and we'll try it out here on, on the show. Yeah, I think it'll be great. KU5A from the AEA Ribbon Mics. Yeah. California cost of living, if you've been here for a while, it becomes so much the norm that when you go to other places, and I have this experience because my wife's family lives in Michigan, so I go to Michigan every year. Yeah. And when we go out to dinner or do anything and you get the bill, it's almost as if you're like, wait, was there- <laughs> Yeah, did they forget did, something? Was there a problem? Yeah. Or, oh my God, I'll get this one and the next one and the next one too. Yep. It's like they're giving it away. So that shock of, of economic affordability, it affects how you operate on a psychological level because you're not like freaking out about money all the time. You know, honestly, that has been the biggest benefit. I feel like I took my first breath when I moved to Nashville in 20 some years. A good example is we, when we left Los Angeles, we lived in the Sunland area, you know, just 15, 20 minutes north of, of downtown Los Angeles. And we had a house that we liked, but it was a small house. It was a thousand square feet on a small lot, little kind of sort of ranch style house, pretty cool little character home, but had no garage. And Sunland's a pretty scrappy area. All our neighbors were really cool, but you know, we lived on a dead end. So you know, it's Los Angeles. Things happen. I mean, two in the morning, I wake up and there's someone in their car smoking crack in front of my house, you know? And when you live in Los Angeles for that that long, that stuff, unfortunately, becomes normal, even in the, mm-hmm. even in the nicer neighborhoods. And once my son came along, I realized he couldn't live there anymore. Just I just didn't want him to. So we sold our little house, like I said, thousand square foot house, and for the same price, moved to Brentwood, which is unbelievably nice area, best school districts in Tennessee. And we moved from our tiny lot to five and a half acres. I have a 2,500 square foot log home with a pool and a four car garage that has a loft above it. And I can't see any of my neighbors. And my driveway is longer than the entire street I used to live on. My mortgage is the same. And there's no state income tax here. Unbelievable. Yeah. And like huh. you said, you go everything everything else is for the most part cheaper. And so that directly affects your day-to-day operational mentality. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a real world? Did I just make that up? Operational mentality? No, I, I mean you're right. It 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 affects your overall sort of level of peacefulness and sanity and being able to not have to worry about some of those things as much. I mean, it's amazing when you live in Los Angeles and, you know, even for a young couple, you have to be making well over six figures to even be able to afford a rent to rent a nice home. Oh yeah. That's like middle class here. Six figures. Lower middle class. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. With all due respect to Los Angeles, you're coming from a scrappier environment. You're coming from an environment where you really there's a little more tension and here you get to Tennessee and it's like, ah, I can breathe now. So when you got there, did you have a plan? Were you a little on edge and did it take a while to relax? Yeah. You know, the plan that I had revolved mostly around getting my family settled. I knew that I would be able to get the mastering business settled and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. So my main objective was to get 
my family out, which was the most stressful thing, trying to move a, a you know, an infant and three cats and all your stuff across country. Luckily, we flew and we had the rest shipped, but it was still insanely stressful. Was it like herding cats? Oh, wait, you were exactly We were, yeah. Carried three cats onto a plane and with, a, with a small child. I don't <laughs> recommend that. As long as you don't screw up and put the child in the cat carrier. Exactly, and, you know. exactly. But uh, my initial plan with, with my studio situation was to do a complete build out in my barn. So I have more than enough space in there. So that was the plan. You know, I'm partners with PMC loudspeakers and they've been really good to me. And Maurice and and Rory and Jordan are amazing. And Maurice basically told me they have a they have a small room in Berry Hill here in Nashville that's set up like a mastering room. And Maurice is like, just come work here however long you need. And the setup was Essentially, you know, the monitors are very similar to the monitors I already use. And I worked there for a few months and it was fantastic. Mastered a bunch of records in that room and really loved it. And that sort of gave me the time to figure out what the next step was. I realized pretty quickly that working from home wasn't going to be an option for me. Too hard to separate the home life from the work life, especially with my kid who wants to hang out. And if he sees me going in and out of the building that's only 15 feet away from the house, it's, I just didn't want to do that to him. So this room opened up at, at Reed Shippen's place, and I basically ended up coming in and essentially taking half the building. So I have a mastering room here, and my new assistant, Dan Bacigalupi, has a, a room right across the hall. So it uh, just all kind of worked out. So there's there's more than one Bacigalupi in the world of audio? Not related to John. Okay. Everyone asks that. For the listener, we're talking about John Bacigalupi, who's the publisher of Tape Op. Dan has no relation to John. Yeah. N- last names are spelled differently, I believe. Don't ask me to spell either one. Took me a while to even learn how to say Bacigalupi. We call him Bag of Donuts, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, Reed took you in and uh, you got a place there and you and Reed share management. We do, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I changed a lot of my business structure when I made the move to Tennessee. So in, in Los Angeles, Dave Gardner, who's my mastering partner out there, he kind of mans the Los Angeles operation. And my former, our former manager, Megan Rogers, was out there and she's fantastic. I mean, she's like my sister and she really helped grow our business. But, you know, her life, she'd been with us since, since 2006, I think, like very early on. Her and her husband had their first child and things just kind of started to change. And I think she was ready for a change. I know a lot of that had to do with me moving as well, I'm sure. But I think she was kind of ready to to do something else. So this situation with our manager, Elena, just ended up working out perfectly. So she manages all of Infrasonic. And uh, so me, Dave, Achikalupi, and then she manages Reed too. It's obviously super convenient because we're all under the we're all under the same roof over here. What does that do for you? You know, I, I mean, I know a lot of mastering guys handle all their own invoicing and all, you know, all of the handle they handle the financial end of everything. I'm not great at that, so I basically, for me, it made more sense to outsource it and. 
I'm able to get more mastering work done. She handles most of my day-to-day interaction. She'll handle initial interaction with clients just to kind of get the ball rolling. And what I like is I like her to handle the business portion of the job, and then I can handle the more artistic portion of the of the job with the clients. It's not like she's a shield so the clients can't speak to me. I'm, I'm very open and always want direct communication with my client. I also absolutely hate discussing the financial aspect of mastering with the client. You know, she handles quotes. She does all the invoicing. She chases money down, you know, brings in work as well. How does one come to an agreement about what is that worth to you? Is that based on a percentage or is that a monthly fee? How would one do that? It's percentage generally. And every manager sort of takes a different cut, I assume. But yeah, we've worked out a percentage that works for both of us. And obviously it's it's not the solution for everyone, but I've reached a point where it's something that I can afford to do. And I've done the numbers and financially it makes more sense to have someone handling that, even though it costs quite a bit of money. I, I end up saving money because it allows me to focus on the work. I hold Nashville in very high regard. There's incredible talent, not only just in, in the audio world, but in the world of, of the musician. Are there things that you learned or picked up on moving to Nashville that you never really thought about or knew living in Los Angeles working as a professional? Like you kind of touched on, the level of musicianship here is mind-blowing. I mean, you could walk into any bar on any night and just see you know, a couple guys up there shredding. It's rare that you would ever go in, go into a venue and see a bad band play. I mean, you might see a band that you don't like, but they're, they're all going to be people that know how to play, which in LA, that's not always the case. People seem to take it a little bit more seriously here. It's their, it's their job. It's their craft. There's a lot of things about Nashville that I have had no, in, until moving here, had no understanding of or exposure, and, and especially in the world of country music and with the more pop country stuff, there's, you know, this, they have, you know, teams of songwriters and, and this whole sort of demo business that goes on here is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. That's definitely different from the world I come from. So that's that's pretty unique thing to Nashville. Did you feel like an outsider coming from the West Coast? I was really careful about who I told I was from Los Angeles. There, there, are, <laughs> there are definitely people here that aren't that happy with, with West Coasters moving in. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I, even though I lived in California for as long as I did, I grew up in Colorado. I mean, I don't, I, I don't feel like a big city guy. And I, I lived in Los Angeles because I had to. I moved there to, I mean, ultimately, I moved there to play music and and to work in this industry. So that's why I was there. And there, like I said, there are a lot of things I love about Los Angeles, but I always knew that I would eventually leave. You know, my retirement plan will be a couple hundred acres in Montana in the middle of nowhere. So that's, that's kind of where, that's where I'm coming from. So I didn't, I didn't really feel like the, the kind of smaller town vibe in general was really comforting to me. You and I have a lot of a lot of mutual friends, and of course, I think your your network is quite a bit larger than mine. So moving there, you already had a, a whole boatload of friends. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was really easy for me. I, I I know so many people here, and I was coming here. You know, I was coming here fairly frequently, at least three or four times a year. 
yeah, moving here was really easy. It felt like I had an endless resource of people that were willing to lend a hand, even if it was just like, hey, where the hell can I get a good burrito around here? Surprisingly, there are some decent Mexican restaurants here. No sushi. None. Not even worth it. That's a bummer, but... That is a bummer. There are airplanes, so I'm coming back to L.A. next week, so I'll get my fix for a while. You know? <laughs> You'll get your fix in. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. I've talked to numerous people about moving to various locations. I've talked to Sylvia Massey. I've talked to John Greenham. And a lot of people say, you know, it takes a couple of years to really get your feet planted firmly on the ground. But that was usually in reference to Los Angeles. So yeah. you've been there now about a year, right? Year in November. Yeah. And it seems like you're kind of in there. And my family is fully integrated. I mean, my wife is already, I mean, she's been gardening and she's canning vegetables now and hanging out with our, our two neighbors, our, our, the only neighbors that are kind of close by are in their 80s. And they're, they're old farmers. They're amazing. So, I mean, and I'm not joking. They, they bake pies and bring them over to our house. That's the, <laughs> the, those are the neighbors I have now. So we're, yeah, we're fully, I mean, it, it feels like home now. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. when people are bringing pies to your house, that says something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that happened in Los Angeles, you know, you would shoot them when you open the door, but <laughs> I know, yeah, and you would you you would check the pie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now with this lower cost of living and what appears to be a, a fair amount of work, how do you feel about your survival now? I feel good. I mean, I I was never really stressed out about not having enough work. I mean, of occasionally, of course, my manager will call bullshit on that because last month it was sort of slow. And then I realized every year it's always kind of slow. I, I, if I'm not overbooked and not booked out like at least three weeks and not running around like, you know, like my hair is on fire, I start to lose my mind. The biggest plus of all of this is just being able to enjoy life a little bit more and being able to take a step back and breathe and not having to feel like I have to hustle as much. But our quality of life has gone up significantly. For me, this is where I want to live. Like I, I would want to live here even if I wasn't in this industry. It's a bonus to be able to get to move here and work and truly love the place that I that I live in. So from a work-life balance perspective, this has been a win for everybody. Oh yeah. In your in your family. Yeah, no doubt. There are zero complaints. I mean, my wife, two weeks in, she was kind of joking around with me. And, and my wife was born and raised in eastern Los Angeles. Uh, that's where she's from. She lived in Fremont for a while and she went to school in Santa Cruz. But other than that, I mean, she's an Angelino. And I was worried about her moving out here. But yeah, she told me like two weeks in, she's like, I love it here. If you divorced me tomorrow, I wouldn't move. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she was just kidding around, but it was funny to <laughs> you're like I'm like, hey, wait a minute, come on, uh, wait a sec now. But it was funny to hear her say that because my biggest worry was that she wouldn't like it, and she loves it. So that makes me happy. That that makes it all worth it. What are some of your favorite things about Nashville and the audio community there? I like how close knit the audio community is here. I like the fact that you know I can walk down the hall and and hang out with Reed and watch him mix a song or pop in and and watch Vance do something. You know, we've had we have a Mark Rubel is has kind of organized this really cool sort of kind of a mini version of what happened of the LA engineers lunch. I don't know if you know about that. I'm sure you've been to that before. I haven't been, but I know of it and I've been invited and I need to go down and do that. It's great. But we, we kind of have a once a month thing that we do here now. That's been really fun. Just get everyone together and shoot the shit and eat a burger and take a little break. I don't even know what else to say. It feels so comfortable at this point. It's a really positive place to work. Everyone's really supportive. I don't feel like anyone's sort of trying to undercut each other or, and I'm not saying that was happening a lot in Los Angeles, but I, I do think Los Angeles is much more com- competitive in, in, in this industry than it is here. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Uh, from a weather perspective, big, big differences for you? Well, I mean, you know, you're not going to get any better weather than Southern California. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm happy to not have to deal with the fires that got pretty close to our house last year. The Latuna Canyon fire got unreasonably close. But uh, humidity is kind of a bummer if you're not used to it, but I'm fine with it. Yeah, I like it. It's nice having seasons again. I didn't think I would enjoy it. But I like it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, how do you get most of your work these days now? I would say a good portion of my work is just all repeat clients, repeat engineers and producers sending me work. And then a good portion of the remainder is clients coming to me based off the work they've heard that I've done for for those clients. So I don't advertise or anything. You know, I think my manager kind of is starting to sort of pound the pavement a little bit and meet new people you know, kind of get the word out. But other than that, it's, you know, mostly word of mouth or, uh, you know, I guess reputation. Yeah. So I feel lucky enough to do a, a few records that people like. And, you know, you, because of those, you get to do a lot more records. And do you feel like as a mastering engineer that the fact that you cut vinyl is an advantage or cut lacquers, I should say? Definitely. I think for a lot of clients, they want to keep everything in-house. And I think the vinyl aspect is tricky. So whenever you can have the same person that has done all of the audio mastering handle the vinyl portion as well, I, I think your, your, your chances of putting out a, a good-sounding record are drastically improved. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to check you out, where should they check you out at? The website is infrasonicmastering.com. Uh, we're on Instagram, Infrasonic Sound, my personal Instagram that I post mostly studio stuff and or pictures of my kid. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> Plyman, P-L-Y-M-A-N. And uh, we're, you know, we're on Facebook, all the kind of normal social media stuff. Pete, it's been great to talk to you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and I look forward to seeing you in person. Unfortunately, I will not be at AES. I will be at NAM. I hope to see you there if you plan on coming out. I'll be there for sure. Excellent. Thanks again for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. No problem. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, we'll chat with you later. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. 
Mr. Pete Lyman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 199 episodes down. How about that? And Pete is number 199. And you're probably asking yourself, who is number 200? Well, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) You're just going to have to come back next week and figure it out. Uh, Stop on by the website, actually. Instead of just getting it through subscription, come on by the website, workingclassaudio.com. There's all kinds of stuff over there. There's a guest suggestion form that you can, of course, check out. There's some uh, studio tours. There's some uh, recommendations of all kinds of things, products, books, all kinds of knickknacks. So check that out. And uh, there's a few, very few video editions of the podcast. Still trying to get my feet centered, trying to get my bearings with the video. That's that's just a whole nother ball of wax. Podcasts. Man, it's audio. It's it's definitely a much easier thing to deal with. Anyhow, stop on by workingclassaudio.com and please click on one of those sponsor links. Our friends over at Universal Audio, Audio Technica, AEA Microphones, Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab. Those folks really have helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. So uh, stop on by, click on one of their links, visit them, show them some love. And I want to give a special thank you to Mr. Cliff Truesdell and Mr. Chuck Smith. Cliff has provided the music and Chuck has provided the voice for all of these episodes. And uh, I deeply appreciate their help. So um, thanks again. We'll see you next week for number 200. And until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.